Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't. But the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Tanya Rashid, who is a freelance foreign correspondent, about her stories on the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh. She talks about the ethics involved in covering major stories of human tragedy and the psychological toll it takes on reporters. Many of Tanya's reports have been seen on PBS NewsHour, CNN International, Vice News, and on Al Jazeera. Tanya, you've covered uh, horrific situations all over the world. Uh, that that must take some toll on you as a person. Absolutely. I'm a human being, and I have feelings and emotions. And there, you know, there are stories that I've worked on that have really, really impacted me in my life and honestly had me take a break because I started to burn out. Just too much. It's, you know, being overwhelmed with just horrific incidents that unimaginable incidents that a human being could go through um, it's it's traumatizing the secondhand trauma is real when you keep hearing about it over and over and over again there's something not so normal about it I've talked to many f- photojournalists over time and they all seem to have that mission to shoot the picture to take the shot but at the same time they have a personal feeling can I jump in and help uh, a situation do you have any of those type of feelings as well I have I did this story once on this 12 year old girl who was gang raped brutally gang raped by the Myanmar military forces her entire family was then murdered in front of her eyes she had she was a virgin and she found herself pregnant inside of the the refugee camps had a baby and was living in complete isolation and in the rohingya community girls are often seen you know it's a very patriarchal culture so there's there's a way young girls are treated and if you're a survivor of rape people look at you a certain way and there's a shame that comes with it so for me to see her living under that type of isolation, crying every day, baby was malnourished, um, prompted me to contact the UNFPA to get her some serious help. 
And luckily, I was able to get a, a social worker because the help is there inside of the camps. It's just the, the young girls and women are afraid to speak up about it. So I got this social worker to come in and speak to the young girl about her mental health and her baby. And I haven't followed up on it, but to my understanding, the UNFP got involved and have been assisting her. So yeah, there are incidents where I see things and I can't turn away. There's absolutely no way. I'm, I see someone suffering, and if I think there are resources and tools that could help this person, I, I take action. Absolutely. That, I don't know how other journalists operate, but for me, that's very important. That has to be horrific for her, because I assume every time she looks at her baby, she has to relive the most traumatic incident of her life. Yeah. Yeah. Completely horrific for her. She's just a young girl, and she doesn't have any family. She's living in this hut by herself. There's no help. There's no food. And she's depressed. And, yeah, and the, the baby's malnourished because I think she has this love-hate relationship with the child. When you get ready to go to a, a place where you know there's human tragedy, do you prepare yourself ahead of time? And, and if so, how do you do that? Do I prepare? No, I. it's very interesting. I have a therapist. I've had this therapist for eight years. And well, I had during the time where I, when I was covering the Rohingya refugee crisis, I had my therapist of eight years. And before a trip, I tell her I'm leaving. And then she, she really didn't like it. She'd say, why? Why do you keep throwing yourself into these situations? And that's like a very interesting question. For me, it's a deeper sense of purpose. It's a calling to be there, to be you know, share these stories, especially as a Bangladeshi woman of color who understands the cultural context, the religion, the language, the people. I know I can get to the heart of a story, and I put myself there for that reason. Um, so the mental preparation is more of my call to action, my inner purpose, and going there and giving voice to those stories that people are not really getting. I don't consider myself to be a parachute reporter. I'm more than that. I'm mindful reporter. I go in and I get to the heart of the matter. So that's what prompts me to go. But preparation is the, 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 the purpose factor. She asked you why you go. And, and I'm sure that's a, a, a very deep question. But because of your background and because that you left that part of the world uh, and came to the United States and lived in Utah and, and had that experience, do you, th is there some part of you that feels like you perhaps escaped some of this trauma face-to-face -face and you go back to it? I believe ancestral trauma is real. My ancestors, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother went through horror and tragedy one after another. Uh, colonialism is a huge factor in my ancestry. And so, no, I didn't escape. In fact, I face it every day in my immigrant community when I see my people suffering here. Um, mental illness, depression, PTSD, 
um, are real things happening within my community. So there is no escape. For me, it's constantly facing it. And then when I'm in Bangladesh, it's facing it on a deeper level, on another level, looking at it through a different lens. Let's, let's take our audience back a little bit and talk about the uh, refugee, the Rohingya refugee <clears throat> issue. How did it start? Where is it today? So the Rohingyas are a Muslim minority group that live in Myanmar and Rakhine state. And the the Rakhine the the Buddhist majority believe that the Rohingyas are ethnically Bengali, that they don't belong to Myanmar. So this there has been a brutal campaign on completely annihilating them as a race over the decades. This is not a new thing that's been happening. But uh, what I covered was a mass exodus that happened in 2017 when their villages and their homes were burnt to ash at a very large scale. As they watched under armed guard. Yeah, well, they watched their homes being burnt and babies were stomped to death. Women were raped. It was just... I was on the front line of that, watching people come across the border, and and I it's unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. Thousands of people carrying their belongings, whatever they had, escaping and fleeing for their lives. And I'll never forget how smog and black smoke filled the sky, and I could see from a distance these these huts just burning to ash and these people just crossing the river. And most of them were women and children, young, you know, young babies. Um, it, it wasn't just crossing like people here may think, well, you walk down the road. No. I mean, this was uh, horrific uh, terrain uh, yeah. going through the rice paddies, going through mud. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most moving clips I saw of what you did was an old woman who had to be carried on the back of a young male relative because she Couldn't just walk. could not walk another step. Uh, that, that was such a powerful image. They had no choice. They had no choice. They were being killed and, and shot, you know, shot to death and raped and massacred at a, uh, at, a, at a large scale. They had to flee. They had to escape. And yeah, many of them didn't have food. Some people I spoke to had trekked through mountains in the mud and rain for seven days. One woman told me a story about her baby dying in her arms as she was trekking through the jungle and how she had to bury her baby on her way to Bangladesh. You can't even imagine the, the the personal horror that that would entail. Horror and resilience. These people are incredibly powerful. I mean, when I arrived, when I was on the front line and I, the people were coming in, they were sleeping on plastic, uh, you know, bags on the floor. Um, they didn't really have, they were, you know, they there weren't bathrooms or anything. So it was just a very chaotic, unsanitary situation. But over the years, they have built something out of nothing. They took, you know, cut uh, trees 
and built homes and tents. And now it's like a sprawling Rohingya town, which, you know, is the world's largest refugee camp. And if anybody would look at pictures of this, it's it's amazing. Mm -hmm. If you look from an aerial shot, it just sprawls everywhere. And it's these little wooden sort of lean-to shack-like, but thousands Mm -hmm. of them uh, across this terrain. Yeah. I mean, what used to be a a mangrove forest has now been turned into just camp on camp on camp, like lots of different ki- different refugee camps. Yeah, different refugee camps. So and they all have different blocks, you know? They're divided by blocks. There's block A, B, C, D, and there's camp leaders that are in charge of each block. And they're usually Rohingya, Rohingya people who are in charge. Recently, there's been a new really interesting development. Camp leaders are usually men, and they get voted in. Uh, more recently, there have been women camp leaders. I think there is one that my colleague covered, and I think that's brilliant because, again, most of the refugees coming in who have fled have been women and children. So to see a woman take a powerful stance in this patriarchal culture, it says something. Let me pull back a little bit and talk about the the whole concept of ethnic cleansing, which... Mm -hmm sounds like what this is yeah. in, in a way. You, you must have powerful feelings about that, but do you, is there any rationale behind it other than just pure prejudice? It's just hatred. It's hatred. It's seeing. Is it a hatred that you can understand hatred. or is it just a hatred that is so illogical and irrational that you can't even get your head around it. I mean, you look at history and how genocide happened in the past. It's just unexplainable hatred. It it just doesn't make sense. Their their reasoning is that these people are Bengali and not part of Myanmar. They're not part of their, they don't want, they don't consider them part of that country. But but they even go further and consider them subhuman. They do. They consider them less than human. Yeah. So we characterize. They call them Kalar, which is essentially the N-word. So we characterize people other than, than the majority as as somehow dangerous or or they make us impure i'm trying to get to they're, they're not human they're just seen as subhuman you know the less less than they're just seen as animals that need to be slaughtered and killed they're 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 seen as contaminating their society so we have these massive refugees uh, marches and and uh, this massive refugee camp that you were the world's largest about. refugee camp, yeah. and and there are refugee camps all over the world, but that's the world's largest. Once people got there, though, they still weren't safe, and that was part of your story, right? They were still played upon by traffickers and, and right. abusers. Yeah, young women or girls are particularly vulnerable inside of the camps. And 
I mean, one of my stories looked into child marriage, early marriage. You know, in their culture, they believe a girl should be married off at 12 or 11 years old. And I followed this young girl being married off to a guy she didn't even know. I mean, think about it. She just fled for her life from Myanmar, watched her relatives get raped and murdered. And there she is in this camp, in this place that she doesn't know and and is not her home. And then she's being married off to some stranger. So for, for the rest of her life. It, it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. she doesn't even understand what marriage means or why that's happening to her. And then I moved from that and into, I mean, I really chased those difficult stories, especially regarding young girls and women. And then I'd, I, I, just walking through the camps, I spent so much time there, I noticed that there were brothels um, where young girls were... Um, you know, working in because they weren't getting enough food ration. And to survive, they had to do this work. And I learned that some of the clientele were Bengali, Bangladeshi men, um, and that, that, that it wasn't just happening inside of the camps, but outside in the main city. And then I found links to um, the lals. The lals are basically the brokers or the pimps that get the women from the inside the camps into the main city. And then through the Dalal, I went into the main brothel in the city where I went undercover. I filmed undercover. And I saw firsthand young Rohingya girls working. Uh, and uh, I, I had the opportunity to interview one of the young girls. And when you see my film, you, you right. know, it's just a very tragic, horrific situation that she went through and continues to live every day in her life. So, yeah, so there are, there are many things going on inside of the camps. There's also physical abuse. This is a story I've been wanting to look into, domestic abuse. Imagine facing trauma to, you know, traumatized people, like a husband and wife. What is happening? Are there mental health facilities? No. How are they dealing with the trauma? It's unspeakable trauma. How do you deal with that? Where do you begin? Where do you start? How do you dissect that? Um, and it's it's not being dealt with. So you see a lot of people doing drugs. Um, there's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering, um, especially with women. And women end up dealing with the brunt of it, I think. And uh, is... Part of that cultural with the culture that women are less than? Yes, I do. I mean, it's fact, yes, that the, the Rohingya culture is very patriarchal. And um, they, women are seen in a particular way. They, they are to be at home, cook and clean, uh, and the husband is the bread earner and the one bringing in the money. However, I did meet some outstanding individuals who thought differently about that. So there are people who I wouldn't say every Rohingya person thinks th this way, but it is the main main part of their culture. Yeah. I'm really interested in the term that you used, and you've used it often, and that is resilience. Hmm. Uh, 
t- talk about that a bit. I mean, I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. somebody going through the trauma that you've described and you've shown in your f- films and coming out on the other side of that other than terribly damaged for forever but yet they move on and and they they continue uh, their lives is that what you mean by resilience well i'll tell you a story about resilience my recent report i in my recent report for pbs news hour i looked into this young girl who with a broker escaped the camps and has been living illegally in pretending to be a Bangladeshi in the city. And her dream is to become a human rights attorney for her people. Uh, That is the story of resilience. A young 12-year-old girl escaping the camps to get an education and faking her identity in the process. Uh, And so doing that story on her was a testament to resilience and how, like, what someone would do to to survive and to do something for their people. She's in trouble now, unfortunately. Uh, her older sister, do I mean, I'm I'm actually doing a story on this. Her older sister uh, did a report for the Associated Press where she revealed her identity as. Um, so her sister's in college as well, faking her identity. And the Associated Press used her face and her images in the report. And now both her and her sister have been expelled from school. And people, there's tension, growing tension between the locals and the Rohingya community. And they're living in hiding. And that's due to bad journalism, bad journalism practice. Bad journalism, as you describe it, but uh, an ethical question uh, that journalists may not have even considered. Their safety. The the safety of their source or the safety of the subject of their story. You have to have ethics in front of you all the time doing the kinds of stories you're doing. Absolutely. And when I reported on this young girl, I didn't show her face. Uh, we filmed it in a silhouette. We we did everything we could to protect her identity. So when I see this report that the Associated Press does revealing her older sister's uh, name and face and everything, it's disturbing. It's I think it's destructive. It's irresponsible. Uh, we need to be mindful of the people we're covering and think about how vulnerable they are. What I mean, their lives are essentially on the line now because this reporter from the AP had to meet deadline and wanted to get that best story possible. You, you, and, you have their lives in your hands. Yes. Literally. Absolutely. And they're, they're trusting you with their story. And it's your responsibility. It's, it's my responsibility to do it in an ethical way to protect them, not to cause more trauma or pain in their lives. As as a journalist, it, what do you do with colleagues that that do what you've just described? Did you reach out? Did you say, "What the hell are you doing?" Or 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 did you have any communication at all? No, I've actually been involved with protecting these young girls right now. 
I've been trying to get help for them. That's been my priority. But I am going to write about it. Actually, I've started to write about it. This is on, it's on it's, my mind. It's, it's front and center in, your, it in is. your thoughts, right? It makes me, it's infuriating. It makes me very angry. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. NPR just did a, a, a story uh, about uh, uh, sex for grades in, in West Africa. Oh, right. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. I think you might know I'm some of the people who worked on it. It was part of a BBC project. I don't know the people who worked on it, but I thought it was a very interesting story. And the young girl who did it, the incre- Kiki Mortis, right. she incredibly brave. She couldn't. She was being harassed by her teacher, uh, couldn't finish school, but used her journalistic chops to expose. Uh, and these. came forward. Yeah. And, and it, it was. It seemed like an incredible piece of, of journalism. But to do that, she had to go undercover. You mentioned earlier that you went undercover in, in, a, in a brothel. What are the ethics of going undercover to get a story, to be deceptive? In order to bring you out really want to know, the truth. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, it's a long process. Uh, with that particular story on the sex trafficking, I met with uh, the Godfather, the what do you call him, the the pimp of the area, right, at a tea stall, and I told him, look. I'm working on this story on young Rohingya girls being trafficked into the main city center, and I want to go into these brothels and see what's really going on. And he said, okay. Because I knew a friend, my fix, not my friend, this is very complicated. (laughs) How do I break this down? So my fixer, I don't like to say fixer, I don't like that word. My local producer knew the pimp who was the the godfather pimp of the area. Sat and had tea with him. He likes he liked my local producer. So he said, okay, as a favor, I'm going to let her in. But here's the deal. You have to pretend to be a sex worker. And your local producer and his friend are taking you into this brothel to sell you. I see. 
And so he said, you are a young girl from Dhaka. Put on the headscarf, wear the salwar kameez, go in there, don't talk, keep your head down, and you can go, you can be there. But you cannot, you know, you have to be very careful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so my local producer and I, you know, we got dressed. Well, I got dressed. And then I had another colleague with me who was also Bangladeshi. And um, so it was two male colleagues, two, two local producers, me and this young girl, th- this other colleague, young colleague. And we get in a tuk-tuk and we go <laughs> into the middle of nowhere uh, in Cox's Bazaar. Oh, my gosh, it's so complicated. No, so it's that right. a, okay, step by step. So then we're in a tuk-tuk. We meet this woman who I think is the madame of the brothel. She's well, not the madame, but kind of like the manager of the brothel manages clientele she meets us throws us in the she looks at me she says are you one of the girls are you interested in working and I said yes and she puts us in the in the tuk-tuk where I'm with my two male colleagues her and my female colleague and we're on our way to this brothel car gets parked about three blocks away from the main site get out of the car go into the brothel and then I meet the main pimp the madame as they call it and she sits me down and starts telling me how life is so great inside of there, where I came from. And in Bangla, I said, I came from Dhaka. And she said, oh, you look lost. Let me help you. Uh, let's, um, like, we, we can get you a lot of money. You're really beautiful. Uh, just selling me the dream. It was really bizarre, actually, to pretend to be a yeah. sex worker. It was it was a very anthropological moment, right? I'm just in immersed in this environment and pretending to be someone I'm not. And um, and so anyway, and, and all the while listening and taking <laughs> mental notes and trying to remember everything, right? Right, trying to remember every little detail. In fact, I, w- I would really like to write about this experience. I haven't written about it. Uh, and and then my male colleagues distract her and so does my female colleague and so the plan of action was that they would distract this madame and then I would go exploring inside of the brothel with my iPhone and film it it was really dodgy yeah (laughs) so so my male colleague starts to distract this woman and says okay so how much you know do you want like for these these like how much are you going to pay these girls what do we have to do to get them in here and then my female colleague starts distracting her as well and says well i don't know what you know what what is my room going to look like where you know those conversations so while those conversations are taking place i gently tell her i you know i just want to use the bathroom and i'm just going to go for a quick walk and that i'd be right back and i walk out and i see these young girls in these rooms a couple of them with clients others just sitting alone and I pull out my phone and I begin filming and uh, at first it was film I filmed the premise just showing what is going on yeah just showing the environment and then I put my phone down and then I went into some of these rooms and spoke to these young girls and asked them if they were Rohingya, and they told me that they were. 
Um, but the conversations didn't go further than that because I couldn't reveal that I was a reporter. And they, you know, it was just a very tricky, sticky situation. So, so it had to be social in, in a sense, yeah, as opposed to an interview. Exactly. So they were asking when I was coming to work there and if I'd be their big sister. And it was a very uh, uncomfortable strange moment to experience but yeah so I filmed and then I filmed the rooms what they look like and then before I knew it the woman started shouting looking for me (laughs) (laughs) and I had to run back and I had the phone in my hand and she looked at my phone she said what are you doing on your phone I said oh nothing I was just taking a picture and she said you can't take pictures in here it doesn't work that way. And then I we started to sense the pulse of the environment and, and better leave. Right? We 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 left. We left abruptly. Yeah. And then she I think she called that god godfather pimp and said were are the were they journalists? Why were they there? What were they doing in my brothel? Uh, why did you do this to me? Really? Yeah, why did you do this to me? How could you betray me? But I, I was very careful. Again, going back to ethics, I was very careful about how I used that footage. I did not reveal the faces of the girls inside of there. Um, I blurred their faces. I did not give away the location. So, I'm, you know, yeah, I went into this space. I did go undercover, but I didn't do anything to endanger the people that were working and living there by exposing them. Yeah. You... As a journalist, seem to always take on the underdog, if that's the right word. You always take on the people being suppressed and oppressed. Um, you even did that recently with elephants. <laughs> yeah, it, you saw that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that a bit. So, you know, the re- where the refugee camps are is essentially forest land. It's all forest, and they've been cut down um, with these tents and houses that we spoke about, thousands of them. And one thing we failed to address are the animals that are being impacted by this. Uh, so there are these critically endangered elephants whose migration patterns from centuries ago, decades and centuries ago, have been disrupted um, between because there's a corridor between Myanmar and Bangladesh that they pass through as part of their migration route. And now, instead of there being the corridor, there are tents blocking it. So what happens? Stampedes. Um, and people have died from elephants trying to cross this corridor uh, and, and yeah, it's, there, there's actual video footage of this happening. It's just really disturbing. All of these, all of these consequences that the, the all average— All man-made conflict that's created this situation that's impacting Mother Nature. And it just impacts one thing after another after another. There's this nonprofit that is involved with protecting the elephants. So instead of them going out, you know, the elephants coming in and stampeding through the camps, they've created watchtowers and um, they've empowered local Rohingyas to shoo the elephants away back into the forest instead of coming into the camps and attacking the people and then 
getting, you know, elephants getting murdered as a result, right? Because they're critically right. endangered. Absolutely. So it's it was amazing just to see talk about resilience, these Rohingya people who have dedicated their lives to protecting these elephants. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool to follow that, to see that firsthand. Uh, but, you know, it's sad because we don't know what the future looks like. There's only they can only be shooed into the forest for so long and and then they're going to run out of food. And 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 then there's this thing that's in their DNA and their and their 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 system that's being blocked. And what does that mean for the elephants in their future? Nobody knows unless this corridor is opened up. You've got. So many, you've done so many stories and you've got so many ideas, and there is so much oppression in the world. And in particular, there's so much oppression of females in the world. Do sometimes you get overloaded and think, where do I go next? What, what do I do next? You know, what, what's the story I should be uncovering? Uh, go through that mental process. How do you prioritize what you, what you're doing? I mean, it, it, there's so much out there. That's a really tough question. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you really know how to ask those questions. <laughs> One of the toughest interview interviews I've had. How do I know? I read the news. I read the news. I follow what's going on. For me, it's a lot about how can I embed myself and immerse myself in this world like nobody else has? How can I really get it? Like, you know how people say they want to get to the heart of the story? Mm -hmm. I want to get to the heart of it. I want to get to the bottom of it. How do I do that? It's it, Yeah, of course, it's reporting, research. Um, that's that's very important. But it's also, I think, what's equally as important is being one with the people, being on the ground, understanding, again, the cultural context, the language, being a woman myself, being a survivor of certain things myself, I have a deeper empathy and understanding of what's going on. And using those skill sets is what how I find my stories. You know, I keep those things in mind. Just looking at the way you look as you're sitting across from me now is certainly not the way you look in the field <laughs> uh, re yeah. reporting. Uh, you know, it, it is much more identifying with the people. Well, the, and and yeah. the fact that you speak the language uh, seems to help as well. Well, they are my people. They are my people. It is my it's part of my identity and my roots. My identity is a complex thing. It's something I grapple with every day. But I know that part of my identity is that I come from that. And I and I think every time in the field I'm in the field, I'm facing that. I'm looking at that part of myself. Wow, that's profound. <laughs> <laughs> good good luck with all of your work it, it, it's it's fascinating it's inspiring uh, i hope you're successful in everything you do oh well thank you so much it's so great to be back here again and uh yeah well, let's talk again in the future i think we will okay. <laughs> thanks, thanks.
Today, our guest was freelance foreign correspondent Tanya Rashid, who talked about covering the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh and the psychological toll it takes on reporters covering stories of human tragedy. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 